If you have your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Hold your finger there. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 19 or in 21. So for the last few weeks, we've been in this series uh, called Father, Son, and the Other One. And the other one is the Holy Spirit. And uh, we talked about some things. Uh, four weeks ago, we, in our first week, we talked about how only 25% of Christians in America, people who self-identify as believers in Jesus, say they believe in the existence of the Holy Spirit. 25%. One in four Christians say they believe in the existence of the Spirit. That's a problem since Jesus promised to send us the Spirit to empower us and transform our lives. He is the agent of God's transformation in our lives, so that's kind of a problem. So we talked about that in week one. In week two, we discovered that the Holy Spirit does nothing else in your life. He will not do one more thing in your life. He won't give you any spiritual gifts. He won't fill you. He won't do nothing else until he stops you cold and convicts us of sin. That's the Spirit's first job, to convict us of sin righteousness, and certain judgment without Christ. In week three, we unpack the fact that everyone has spiritual gifts. If you're a believer and you're here, there is no such thing as a red shirt Christian. You have a spiritual ability that God has given you and he wants you to build the kingdom of God with it. And then last week we learned that God wants us to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. God wants you to desire your spiritual gifts, but they work best in an atmosphere, in an environment of Christian love, when mutual care and concern is the air we breathe. That's where the spiritual gifts work best. And today, we're going to wrap it up with our fifth and last installment in the series called Embrace the Mystery. How can you and I continue to experience the power and the presence and the filling of the Holy Spirit? And that's what we're going to talk about today. The biggest barrier that we have to a life in the spirit is fear. Fear and sin, but really the core of every sin is fear. You're afraid that you're missing out on something, so you sin to get it. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. A few uh, months back, back in January, I was typing away on this book, uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I was sitting there at my desk at home, quiet evening, and I'm just typing away a few paragraphs there, and I began to experience something really weird. I had this little flashing red light that was appearing periodically in my peripheral vision, and it would just blink like that. And I just thought, what in the world is that? So I spent the next 35 minutes trying to capture this light, trying to find out where it was coming from. So I would sit there and type and click, type, click, and then I would see it, and I would be like, what? I was trying to catch it. But I couldn't catch it. I didn't know where it was coming, coming from. So I started to get a little worried. I was like, oh my goodness. So I started Googling mental conditions that would cause a red light to flash in your periphery like that. Then I started Googling a, a local neuroscientist who could sort of give me a head exam, a full workup, to help me figure out why I was going crazy. And then I discovered to my chagrin, that that little flashing light happening every uh, so often was actually coming from the bottom of my mouse. It was that little red sensor light (laughs) reflecting off a shiny book. (laughs) Then I spent the next 35 minutes laughing my butt off (laughs) because (laughs) I couldn't stop laughing that I had spent an hour doing this. (laughs) Have you ever seen something that wasn't really there? Fear is a powerful motivating agent. 
Fear will create worlds in your mind that do not actually exist. That's what fear does. That's its job, is to stop you from moving forward and to, and to hold you back. And fear also holds us back from the fullness of life in the spirit. It holds us back. Now, there are some healthy kinds of fear that we need if we are going to survive the world. And as Jesus' disciple, we need it spiritually too. We need what I call rational fear that can trigger our sympathetic nervous systems. Fight or flight. Be bold or bolt. We need that kind of healthy fear. If you go hiking in the woods this summer and you come across a bear and her cubs, you need healthy fear because you need to get out of town. You need to leave as fast as you can go. That's healthy fear. But then there are those irrational fears. Now, the scripture tells us that we are to fear God. Have you ever read that in the Bible? Have you ever wondered, what is, what is the writer talking about when he says fear God? Well, he doesn't mean reverent awe or some other tepid euphemism for, God's, for godly fear. Godly fear is very simply this. It is a wondrous dread that comes over you when you are in the manifest presence of God. It is, it is a glorious sense of panic. That's what I like to call it. It's like when you step up. The first time I uh, was in Central America and I stepped up to this glorious, beautiful, huge waterfall, I knew that I was steps away from just getting swept down and being gone. And it was so majestic. I was afraid of it. It wasn't safe, but it was good. And God isn't safe, but God is good. And that's why you need to fear him. Brennan Manning, the late Brennan Manning, describes God this way. He says, God is an awesome, incomprehensible, and unwieldy mystery. Oh, I love that. An awesome, incomprehensible, unwieldy mystery. God is a raging fire, the scripture says. He is an all-consuming fire. And how do you act around an all-consuming fire? Very carefully. Take it easy. Warm yourself, but don't burn yourself. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> but this irrational fear does us no good whatsoever. When we experience irrational fear, it holds us back. It's the fear that I walk around every single week. My little son Tyler sitting right there by my wife. And Tyler and his two brothers, every year we experience the same fear at the same time. It's the same fear we experience when we watch Discovery Channel's Shark Week. Because for one week, we, we record and watch every single shark episode. And then for another week, we spend the whole week watching out for great whites. We don't live anywhere near the coast. We haven't been swimming in the ocean in ages, but we're afraid of great whites. That's irrational. And that's the kind of fear I'm talking about. I looked these up. There's some really weird fears out there. If you have one of these, I, I do apologize. I am going to make fun of you. Um, but um, <laughs> one of them I found is this, uh, this fear called ablutophobia. Does anyone in this room know what ablutophobia is? Some of you wordsmiths. It is the fear of bathing. I'm pretty sure all my kids have this fear, okay? <laughs> they all have that phobia. Here's a phobia for you, hippopotamostrosequipdaliophobia. Do you know what hippopotamostrosequipdaliophobia is? You could guess, it's a fear of big words. <laughs> Ostensibly, I do not have that fear. There's also this fear, I think this is a funny one, panophobia, that's the fear of everything. Man, I'm afraid of everything. And then phobophobia, the fear of fear itself. That's an awesome one. 
But these kinds of fears, though they feel real, they are irrational, and they're silly in the extreme. Yet many of us experience fear when it comes to moving forward with God in the spirit-filled life. And the reason why we're afraid, there's lots of fears, but the one that I hear all the time is, man, I don't want to get weird. I, I don't want to become some charismaniac, you know, some guy who's known for emotionally binging. Look, a healthy concern of excess is good. That's a good thing, but God wants you to go stumbling, caroming into his presence, asking him to fill you. And I got news for you. You might as well do it because if you're a Christian, if you're a born-again believer and you're sitting in this room today, guess what? You are already a fanatic. Oddball, you weirdo, you bunch of freaks. Your culture already sees you that way. They already think you're nuts for believing that a rabbi in the first century died and rose again and now has given you eternal life. They already think you're a little cuckoo for that. So they already think you're a kook. So go all the way. Stop holding yourself back. Come in the presence of the Lord and let him fill you. Bunch of weirdos. So let's talk specifically, how are we going to overcome this fear, come out of it, and live the spirit-filled life in the fullness of the spirit's presence, this God who is often treated as the other one? Number one, if you're taking notes, live under the influence. That's the first thing Paul tells us. Live under the influence, be filled again and again. If you've got your Bible there, Ephesians chapter 5 is a classic passage, but I want to really unpack it for you today. Here's what Paul says. Starting with verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine. Don't get lit, which leads to debauchery. That word just means a sinful life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourself to one another in fear of Christ. What is Paul referring to here? He's talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, and he tells them how to do it. Now, I want to debunk a little bit of a theological myth that is really prevalent out there. This is the, the most popular opinion you're going to run into when it comes to these, this passage on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is that the phrase, being filled, means to be controlled. I don't think that's quite right. I think that's an overreading of this text. And the reason why people read into this text that is because of passages like Luke chapter 3, where it says, and the people were filled with rage at Jesus. And so they, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, and they try to throw him out of the synagogue and throw him down the hill, hillside in the terraces. Well, they were filled with rage. Now, Acts chapter 13, it says the crowd was filled with jealousy at Paul. So they rioted. So people have assumed that because of passages like that, it must mean loss of self-control. And so when he's talking about being filled with something, these people were filled with rage and jealousy, so they lost their self-control. Furthermore, Paul contrasts being filled, they say, with being drunk. And surely, uh, alcoholism in the first century world that Paul lived in was very much tied to the Dionysus cult. And the Dionysus cult was a drinking cult. It was kind of a drinking religion. 
Some of you are looking at me like, oh, I like that. Now, come on, Christian. So the Dionysus cult was interesting because these guys, these, these people, these pagans would go down to the local pub or the local tavern and they would, I did, I did, it was the Greek version, but it wasn't the Irish version, but they would, they would sing tavern crooning, but more than tavern crooning, they weren't just singing in a bar. They were worshiping the god Dionysus and they were getting themselves kind of worked up, hoping to be filled with this demon god Dionysus. So he could control them and take over their lives and they could be possessed with him. This is the tavern crooning, the pagan tavern crooning that Paul is contrasting. The analogy is one of contrast, not of comparison. He's saying, don't do that. Instead, come to church. Come meet with the family and sing and make melody in your heart. And it results in influence. So none of these passages really teach That being filled with the Spirit or being filled means being controlled. The problem with this view is that it skips a step. These people weren't being robotically controlled by strong drink or jealousy. They weren't. Or rage or anger. They were experiencing rage and anger and alcoholism. They were experiencing, they were eyeball deep in the experience of it. So they were encountering what it was like to be filled with rage and jealousy. So the primary referent of being filled is experiencing. Experience. Encountering something to the degree that you are influenced by it. So experience precedes behavioral modification. Listen, Christian, if you are just waiting for the Holy Spirit to drop out of heaven onto your shoulders so he could just sort of make you live the Christian life, you are not a Christian robot. He is not just going to sort of come on you and you'll be like, I'm going to serve Jesus now. Sorry. Had a breakdancing moment there. (laughs) You're not an automaton. You're not a robot. You need to live the Christian life and the Holy Spirit will meet you at the intersection of your obedience and your faith. And he will fill you and empower you. And when he does, he will influence your thinking. He will influence the way you live and the way you talk. That's being filled with the Spirit. It's experiencing Him to the degree that He fills you. So let me ask you an important question. Like Stephen in the book of Acts, every time Stephen is mentioned, how do they describe him? A man full of the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen went over here, a man full of the Holy Spirit. Apparently Stephen had something that people saw, something going on in his life that caused everyone who knew him and saw him interact with us to say that dude is full of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you a question. When is the last time anyone ever described you that way? When is the last time anyone has ever described me as a person who was full of the Holy Spirit? Because that's the question on the table today. When is the last time anyone ever mistook me for a passionate, zealous, on fire lover of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus, because that's what it's all about, man. It's about becoming a passionate lover of God. You'll fix everything else in your life. I don't care what it is. You will fix it or get on the road to fixing it when you fix that. When Jesus is your God, when he is the core, the focal point of your passions. Well, feeling has to do with experiencing God's presence to the, to the degree that you begin to live under its influence, his influence, 
But we also learn from the passage that there are behaviors that potentiate the experience. There, there are behaviors, spiritual disciplines, spiritual actions that catalyze, that sort of spark the experience and turn it on. While you and I are passive agents, that is, God pours his spirit into us, you can't work it up like the pagan cults were trying to sort of work it up into a frenzy. God is the one who fills you. There are behaviors that you and I can take to actualize it, to experience him, to open ourselves to God filling us. And he tells us what they are. So number two, if you're taking notes, number two, vocalize your passion. Sing, he says, and make melody in your hearts. He says, sing to one another with psalms, hymns, songs of the Spirit. I love that. Sing and make music from your heart, always giving thanks to God for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, a few years back, a while back, I was sort of scanning through the TV uh, channels, and I came across an interview. I think it was Bill Gates. I'm almost, I'm 98% was sure it was Bill Gates. And he was being interviewed, and I just remember someone asking this rich billionaire the question, so what do people give you for your birthday? I mean, the undercurrent of the question was, who could give you anything that you don't already have? And you know what his response was? I just like getting handmade cards for my kids. I just, I filed that. I just thought that was so interesting. Here's the richest guy I know of who says the thing that I like to get, the gift I like to get it's just handmade little written cards for my children. And this, of course, is our experience with God. Now, objectively, those cards and those little handmade crafts that your kids make you and that those kids make him, they objectively are worthless. I mean, they really are. The global equity markets are not going to rise or fall based on how well Bill Gates' kids scrawl pictures on construction paper. But subjectively, to him, they mean something because they are coming from the heart of the little person that he loves. And that, of course, is our dilemma with God. What do you get for the God who has everything? Well, you bring him you because you're what he wants. What do you get for the God who is all-sufficient, who knows everything all at the same time, who has all power, who has all all things, all things are his. What do you get him? You bring him a gift from the heart. You bring it from your very self because he wants something from you. And Paul says, here's what he wants from you. He wants to hear your voice, worshiping and praising him. I learned this lesson when my little daughter, Carly, was four years old. And uh, she used to sing herself to sleep. I don't know if she still does that, but every night, Carly would sing herself to sleep. And we just thought it was so cute. We'd go up and eavesdrop on her. You know, how, you know how you eavesdrop on what your kids are doing and they're so cute, you might snap a little picture. We'd go up every night and listen to her little songs for a couple of minutes. Well, one night I went up there and I put my ear to the door and I could hear her singing about me. And she was singing about how much she loved me. And she was singing about how she loves her daddy, her daddy takes her to Starbucks to buy a donut and just... <laughs> And I'm telling you, I was ruined right there. I was wrecked in the hallway, my friend. And I learned instantaneously why it is that God loves your praises and he loves 
the, the songs from our heart because this stuff moves God. And let me tell you, when you move God, he will move on you. When you move God with your voice, with your singing and your passionate praise to him, he will move on you and that is the principle of spirit filling. This is why we do it. And though she has told me she loves me a thousand times, there's nothing like hearing her sing it, especially when she didn't know I was listening. You see, God loves our gifts for the same reason that a rich dude loves to get a worthless cardboard little craft by his kids. The same reason. It doesn't have to be as good as anyone else. It just has to be your best. Now, I know some of you folks are thinking, well, that's great, Pastor Jeff, but I'm too old to be doing all that. I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm you know, some of you are like, I'm, I'm in my 60s, I'm in my 70s. I, I'm too old to be getting jiggy with it, Pastor Jeff. And I, I'm all right with that. Listen, I don't want you to hurt yourself. Don't break a hip. Don't do anything you shouldn't be doing. All I'm saying is this. Honestly, it really doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter if you're 16 or 66. That does not matter because God does not see you as an old person. God sees you as his little boy. And God sees you as his little girl. And when he hears the praises and worship and singing from your heart, it just does something in him. Does he change? No. He's immutable, yes. Theologically, that's all true. But I'm telling you, it just it makes him want to get close to you. When you move God, he will move you. And you will live a life of fullness with the Holy Spirit. So we sing. We worship. And for some of you, that step of faith, like we said before, is just, man, I'm just going to open my mouth. I'm just going to try it today. I'm going to try to keep up with James and all these hard words. All these difficult, you know, it's like, I I don't know all that, but I'm just going to try it. Try it. Step out. Because when you step out in faith, away from fear, the moorings of fear... God will meet you at the intersection of your obedience and faith. So the third way we love the uh, Lord and we are full of the Holy Spirit, number three, is this. We have to up our commitment to practice spiritual disciplines. You got to ratchet up your commitment a little bit. You know, statistics tell us in his book, Gladwell's book, Outliers, we learn that it takes 10,000 hours to master a thing. So when you see a guy who's like a concert celloist, or you see a guy who is just an amazing genius computer programmer, or someone you just think, man, that guy is really just gifted. You know what the truth is? Researchers have found that guy, that person is just like you. They got about the same brain matter that you have, but they have spent 10,000 hours minimum mastering that thing. That's how long it takes. If you're going to master anything in life, you've got to put in the time. It just takes practice. It's the same way when it comes to spiritual disciplines. We all have to up the ante on our disciplines, spiritual habits and practices. Pastor Lowell Stryker tells this wonderful story, one of my favorites of all time, where he became the pastor of a, a really old church. That church had been around for a long time. And he was a new, fresh-faced pastor, And that older congregation was so excited to get Lowell. And when he got to the church, the church began to grow. Younger families started to come in. And about a year 
um, from the time he took the church, the church was doing so well, they decided to launch a capital campaign to raise some money to improve their facilities. So they decided what they were going to do is they were going to go out and hit the neighborhood, the community, and they were going to invite all of their members and all of their inactive members to come back to church and make a pledge to this capital fundraising campaign. And so Lowell Stryker thought to himself, if I could just find the right slogan, if I could just find the right line, and suddenly it hit him, boom, he got it. And he went back and he had these t-shirts made up. And that next Sunday, all the canvassers were there at church and he had these boxes uh, out, up on the stage and he, he jumped up and pulled out of the t-shirt, proudly displayed their new slogan that they were gonna canvass in the neighborhoods with. And here's what it read. On the front, it read... I upped my pledge, and on the back it read, up yours. <laughs> and that's the moment he realized he was in the middle of a debacle. <laughs> you know, in the same way, listen, if you're going to, if you're going to live full of the Spirit, you got to up yours. <laughs> Get some t-shirts made on it. But you're going to have to dial up your commitment to spiritual habits and practices. And the scriptures give us what they are. First of all, it's learning the word of God. The first one is this. You'll have to up your commitment to the word. I talk about this one a lot. You guys know that I'm kind of a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an egghead. I'm a nerd. I'm an incurable nerd. I try to learn all that I can. But listen, every, not every person has to be a scholar. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to become a master of the principles and the scriptures, you don't. Some of the best students of the word I know do not have a degree behind their name. And you can, but it takes practice. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, as Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he said it takes training in righteousness, not just trying in righteousness. I could, I could bring a cello up here and I could try to play it all morning for you and all of you would leave immediately. It doesn't just take trying, it takes training. That's what leads to proficiency. The next is you'll have to up your commitment to praying. Well, this one isn't hard. Do you want to talk to God? Of course you do. And that's all it takes. And you don't have to lather it up with a bunch of religion, a bunch of religious jargon. All you have to do is start talking. Instead of letting your mind wander or listening to the radio in the morning, just spend about 15 or 10 minutes in that car or on your way to work talking to God, asking God to fill you with his Holy Spirit, asking him to meet your needs and telling him how much you love him. We're going to have to up our commitment to praying. The third one is this. Third tip is that you'll have to up your commitment to serving others selflessly. The cure to living a self, selfish life is being responsible for someone else, being responsible for another person. Well, this started with me with our marriage. When we first got married, I was really a, an insufferably selfish human being. I mean, this was the world I lived in. I mean, I came from an existence. That's why the first two years of marriage are hard. Remember, that was, your, that was your, probably your hardest two years. Uh, for us, it was the hardest two years because I was coming out of a life where I called all the shots. I did anything I wanted to do. If I wanted to go see a movie, I just, I didn't deliberate about it. I just did it. 
And now I come into this relationship where there's this other human being who is the other half of me, and now I have to learn to compromise. And not only compromise, I have to learn to take care of them. I'm responsible for their spiritual care. But when I first got married, I was just an insufferably abrasive, my wife is probably thinking, I still am maybe, but, uh, but I was just an abrasive person. I was going 1,000 miles an hour and anything in my way got broke. In fact, she will tell you, we, I broke a lot of stuff in the house. I would put together some furniture and it would be rickety and flimsy because I was in a hurry. I didn't have time to mess with all the screws and bolts. <laughs> I broke stuff and I broke relationships too. And I broke those relationships because I was too busy to care about anybody but me. And then I had that little dude right there, sitting right over there. His name is Tyler. And I remember I was so nervous, and I was still kind of a pugnacious, abrasive person. And I remember I was standing there in the delivery room, and that nurse walked him over and put that little bundle. He was 6 pounds, 14 ounces, and he was wrapped up like a burrito from Taco Bell. I mean, he just... She had him wrapped so tight he couldn't move, and she put him in my arms, and I remember holding him so gently. And I remember being consciously aware of every second that I had him in my hands. Because I was breaking stuff, but I couldn't break this. I couldn't break this. And right there, it's like the Holy Spirit released this time capsule of gentleness that was down in me. It was in me the whole time, but I just needed something to release it. And suddenly I became this gentle person. And when I played with him, I was gentle. And the reason why is because all of a sudden I had learned the principle and I had learned it good. That when you take care, when you're responsible for something that's fragile, you will take care of it. You will serve it. And Paul says this, he says in chapter 5, verse 21, be filled with the Spirit, sing, and then he says, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. What does it mean to submit to one another? It means to get into a small group or one of the classes that we run or to get into some environment where you're with other Christians and you're doing life together and you take on a spiritual responsibility for that person sitting across the couch. That person who's sitting across the table. And now, when you are responsible for a life that is fragile, you will learn what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit because you need the Spirit's power to do it. And this is one of the ways we do it. Now, as a dad, I've had to be more than just careful with how I handle them. As they're getting bigger, I still have to be careful. Even as they're getting bigger and they can really hurt me while we wrestle, I'm 200 and something pounds. That's part, the something is undisclosed. (laughs) And as big as they get, I can still get carried away and roll over top of them. And there you go. They're in the hospital in a body cast. (laughs) So I still have to be careful, but I have to be careful with more than just how I play with them and handle them. I have to be careful with how I handle their spirit. Because I can't just steamroll over their spirit. I can't just crush their spirit. I can't just break that. I have to take care of that. And God wants you to take care of something. You're Christian brothers and sisters. This is partly what it means to be filled with the Spirit, is to take care of someone else. If you want God's Spirit to change you, if you want to be filled with Him, 
if you want to stop breaking your marriages and breaking your relationships and breaking everything around you and breaking small groups, be filled with the Spirit. Live your life full of His presence, His glorious, amazing presence that we just prayed and sang about. Sing with all of your heart. Learn His Word. Learn to pray and talk with God. Living under the influence of the Spirit. We have to up our commitment. We have to up our commitment to each other, to spiritual disciplines, to the kingdom of God, to Jesus himself. This is how we do it, folks. Well, that is all. I am done. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Let's pray. Bow your heads, close your eyes. And I'm going to invite you, if... You've been hearing all this maybe today or maybe the last few weeks and you have not crossed the finish line. You have never walked across the line of faith and you wanna do it today. Today's your day. Will you pray something like this with me? Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner far from you and I need your grace. Will you forgive me of my sins? Cleanse me of all unrighteousness as you promised to do. And if you're praying that prayer, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you right now. And if you're a believer here, and you just want to be filled with more of God, more of Jesus, will you open your heart this morning? Don't rush out of here. Don't rush off in your mind right now. Sit and just let the Holy Spirit, oh, just baste in his presence, just bask in his presence. Ask him to fill you. Tell him how much you love him. Let him hear it. Tell him how passionate you are for him. Because that God will meet you at the intersection, at the corner of obedience and faith. That's where he's going to meet you. So we're going to take the offering as our last act of worship. And we're going to sing as we do it. Let's worship. Open your heart and give. And I'll be back in a second. All right, a couple of things. If you prayed that prayer to receive Jesus for the first time, we have some new believers packets on the back table. Um, grab one on your way out. And you believers, remember this. This is your motto for the week. Up yours. <laughs> Go be filled with the Spirit. We'll see you. See you next week.